Last week, Pastor Steve told us about evangelism. Uh, he was telling us about how it's part of the Christian walk is to know Christ and to make him known. Deep and profound, I know. I know. The thing that got me is uh, last week is that, well, I have learned this stuff before. There was nothing that Steve said that I didn't already know. I mean, heck, I have a master's degree in this kind of stuff. I spent lots of time doing this. I've been a Christian for 20-odd years now. I should know pretty much the basic thing about evangelism. Yet, when I heard the sermon last week, I felt kind of convicted. I don't know if anybody else had that experience, but maybe I'm just an idiot and you guys are all really brilliant. But it's something that I actually have trouble with. I really do have trouble telling people about Jesus. And it's not the normal problem that people think of when they say evangelism, because they think, you know, you're uh, terrified of other people or you're scared of things. I have no social skills whatsoever, so I'm not really scared about what people think because I don't even know. <laughs> That's not my problem. My biggest problem when it comes doing evangelism, and actually with almost anything with the Christian life, isn't that I know I should be doing something different. It's that usually when I face the situations where acting in a certain way is necessary, I don't even think about it. It just doesn't enter my twisted little mind at all. And I think that's actually the biggest problem that Christians tend to have when it comes to the Christian life. It isn't that we pointedly desire to do the wrong things at, the, at different times. It's that in a lot of cases, when it comes to the way we should be living as believers, we just don't see it. We don't think of it. I mean, it's one thing to be able to say that, you know, like, I know I should be really kind to people around me, that I should be able to tell people about Jesus, that I should be able to you know, uh, read my Bible every day and that kind of thing. And, you know, you've come to church every week for a while, and so you probably know all that stuff. It's completely different to in the day-to-day -day life that we all have to live as Christ would have us live. <coughs> to live as God calls us to live, as he empowers us to live. It honestly sometimes doesn't even enter our mind. And this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that has just happened to us. We are not the first generation to have this problem. In fact, today, I'm going to submit to you that this is one of the problems you see in the book of Nehemiah. Let's see if we... So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try and go through the passage in Nehemiah. I'm going to point out a couple of things, like, you know, like a tour guide. I'm just going to point over to the, this passage over here and this passage over here and hopefully uh, show some interesting things. And then I'm going to draw some things out of that that we should be remembering about this. And finally, I hope we're going to be able to do some quick application, a few questions that we should be thinking about ourselves <coughs> as we live our Christian lives. Now, uh, if you remember, remember, and some of you haven't been here for the majority of my Nehemiah series because it's been going on for a couple of years now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Assyria. Now, this was important because Assyria ruled the entire world at this time. 
They had control almost of almost every kingdom, and the king was a very big name. The thing is, several, several years before this, genera a generation or two before this, the people of Israel had been sent into exile. They had been chosen by God, they had built their kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, but unfortunately, as often happens with people, they had lost their way. They were, had lived in rebellion to God, and God finally sent them into exile in hopes that he would be able to correct them and eventually get them back to be a, a nation wholly set out for them, again, for him again. And Nehemiah, after the period of time that had gone forward and the, a new king was in, in power in Assyria, Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, how the walls around Jerusalem had been broken down. And as I said many, many months ago, when walls are not around a city in the ancient world, that means that city doesn't really exist. It means that there's no safety involved here. Bands of robbers can come in and out as they feel, as they see fit. They didn't have an active police force or an active military that could stop this kind of thing. That's why cities had walls. And so the fact that Jerusalem had no walls meant that there was no city. I mean, people like to say that sometimes building stuff isn't a spiritual exercise. In point of fact, Nehemiah says the precise opposite. Sometimes physical things are actually necessary for the way you do things, for the way that your Christian life lives. I mean, uh, honestly, it's very hard to have hospitality if you don't have a place to bring people into. It's really hard for us as believers to live holy lives if we don't take care of our bodies so that we can actually live. <laughs> if you don't eat, you die. If you die, you can't live a Christian life, <laughs> at least not in this world. So physical things were necessary. And we also saw how Nehemiah, through God's gracious blessing, had somehow been able to get the king of Assyria to pay for building this wall around Jerusalem. Uh, the meme going around uh, the internet recently uh, he's, Nehemiah was the ancient Donald Trump. <laughs> he built a wall around Jerusalem and got the Assyrians to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. So, and that, but that's a sign of God's gracious favor. And this gracious favor extended even further because the people around where Jerusalem was didn't really like Israelites. Because, you know, the Israelites coming in and rebuilding their their, their city would be probably bad for the people who were dominating that area at the time. They wanted to keep their power in, in, in check, in, over the people of Israel and they didn't want them to have the ability to defend themselves. And so building a wall was bad for them. And so we saw how God moved the people and protected the people and kept them safe as they built this wall. We saw how God graciously gave unity to the people as they built. We went through a very long, very apparently boring genealogy about who built where. And we saw how God had moved people, both high and low, to work on the wall. And because of their faithfulness in that time, we here, 3,000 years later, sitting in, uh, sitting in St. John's, Newfoundland, are, are, are hear about these people. So God has been gracious in a lot of ways. 
And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 5. And that's where I'll begin. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Probably a good idea. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And now I, this is kind of Nehemiah's journal, so this is Nehemiah talking. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of our nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. When they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them, we will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. May God add blessings to the reading of his word. So first of all, I want to show you four things that come up from this text. Four basic things. These are not, this is not an exhaustive examination of this text. I'm not going to be writing you a commentary here. But I am going to show you four things that I think are important for the topic I've talked about. First of all, from the text we can see that there are real needs. This is something that's pretty important for us as believers, as people who are called quote-unquote religious, because the world has this idea that there's a secular realm and a, and a sacred realm, and you know the secular is the worldly stuff, the, the physical stuff, and then there's the spiritual stuff that has nothing to do with the physical stuff. Um, while we in the modern 21st century have that understanding, nobody else in the rest of history does. That's ours. And so the, when the Bible deals with this, when it, the Bible sees real physical needs in people, it doesn't understand the idea that we would separate them. That there is a way in which we would imagine helping people's bodies and not helping their souls, or helping their souls and not helping their bodies. It doesn't make sense. Read the book of James in case you want, in case you're worried about that. But look at the text, verse 2. With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So keeping alive is actually important. The food you eat is important. The fact that you have food to eat is important. 
The fact that some people don't have food to eat is also important. People need to be alive for us to actually tell them about Jesus. They do. Dead people can't turn to the Lord. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Again, notice this. Some people's ability to do the work that God was calling them to is being interrupted now because they don't have money. They don't have the ability to, to work for the, for the world. I mean, this is important. Think about it. If you don't actually have the ability to live, you can't help other people. If God is calling you to do something in this world, it's really hard for you to do it if you're wrapped up in other things. It, whether you're wrapped up in the seeking after money because you really like money, or because you don't have any money at all and no way to get it. It makes it very hard for you to follow through with what God calls you to do. And we as believers, especially here in the church, should be caring about that for one another. And that, that, this is what was happening with these people. Notice we're talking about people who are members of the same community. These are siblings dealing with one another. Unfortunately wronging one another. Notice we're talking also about what is happening between <gasps> people of the same group. These are all Jewish people. These are all people who've been called to help build the walls of Jerusalem, to help build the people of God, to bring about the return of the Jewish people. And we've got one side, the Jewish poor, who are unable to work because they don't have money and they might die because they don't have enough food. And then we have the Jewish rich, who are lending them money at interest, and then because of the extreme interest, able to take their lands, their fields, sometimes their sons and daughters into slavery. The Jewish, interest, the Jewish rich are charging interest on the Jewish poor, and they're taking the fields as repayment for the debts. See verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. Again, they're saying it about one another. I said, in verse 6, Nehemiah said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. Notice how Nehemiah reacts to what he hears. We know that this is a wrong thing, that this isn't something that Nehemiah thinks is good, because in verses 6 and 7 he says, I was very angry. Generally speaking, if somebody says, I am very angry, they mean... They're very angry. He hears this. He hears what's happening, and he gets mad when he heard the out, their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, let's wait a second here. What's so wrong about this? I mean, one group is you know needs money; the other group is lending them money. What's the problem? I mean. To be clear, I'm not against economic systems. I'm, I don't think the Bible is either. I don't think the Bible is against people using different ways of funding things to do. What I do think is the problem is the way that they're actually trying to get the money back, the way that they're loaning the money, is not in a way that's designed to help the other person, 
but to actually get things out of the other person. It's a way of using what God has blessed the rich with to get even more of blessing from the poor. That should make people angry. Again, verb from the text. Verses 7 and 8. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. You see, what had happened is that the people, the rich side of the people of Israel, had been blessed greatly by God. God had given them amazing blessings. I mean, not only were they now free, not only were they about to have a wall around them to defend them, but they're also rich. And they're rich and leaders in a community of people around them. God has placed a community around them. They have friends and families and people around them and, and, and love going around them. And instead of using the blessings that God has given them to help one another, to allow the blessings to flow through them to those around them, it turned those blessings into a way to get more for themselves. The blessings that God had given them were now terminating on them. Uh, there is a very similar passage that you'll see in Matthew chapter 18. When Jesus tells a parable, you remember this parable. A king has a servant. Servant owes him an insane amount of money. And like literally, if you do the math on it, it's an insane amount of money. And so it's, and it's possible that this guy could get sold into slavery. His friends, his family, and his children, his children too. To pay off this debt. And the king does something amazing. He forgives the servant completely. Not just, you know, saying, oh, well, it's okay, we'll figure out a payment plan, we'll, we'll, we'll do stuff here. No, instead, he forgives the servant. And then the servant, having had this great blessing given to him, goes out and finds somebody who owes him a little bit of money and throws him in jail in hopes of getting it. Now, besides that not being very wise, because you can't get money out of somebody in jail very easily. They don't generally make a lot of money in prison. That's evil. I mean, in, 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 that's why Nehemiah is mad. If you're in this position, you would be too. Uh, the, in the parable, you see the king saying, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. You pleaded with me. and Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Matthew 18, 32 to 33. There's good reason for Nehemiah to be mad. The people of the richer people of Israel had pretended that this blessing of God was their due. That it was something that they deserved, that they had because of rights, instead of a, having a blessing from God. And so they treated it like something that they had as right and used it to make more out of other people that they should be blessing. 
And to be clear, we just look at the text. It doesn't mean it doesn't say that you shouldn't lend the money. In fact, it does say that Nehemiah said, "I lent my, I lent the people money." The problem is the uh, the use of interest, and the interest here was probably not the 3.2 percent or whatever the government is asking right now under the banking laws. We're probably talking closer to loan shark standards, like 50 percent. Just enough so that you know you will have to pay. Uh, you will eventually owe so much that you'll have to sell everything you own to get it to get out of the debt, including yourselves. There's a reason that Nehemiah is angry. Yet Nehemiah is wise because after he thinks about it, look, look at the text. Literally taking counsel with himself, he realizes first that it's not Nehemiah's grace they're misusing; it's God's grace they're misusing. But secondly, the oppressors don't notice they're wrong. They don't know what they're doing is wrong. You, you don't believe me? Just look at the text. Um, sorry. It says, You are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, he explains the problem. <laughs> and then at the end of verse 8 it says, They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now that's interesting, don't you think? <coughs> Generally speaking, if you know what you're doing is wrong, you come up with reasons why it's not wrong. They would have said something like, hey, Nehemiah, we need, a, we need an accurate banking system, so we're going to have an accurate banking system, and this is, this is going to work out. Or they could come up with, you know, we have property rights in this country, and because we have property rights, we need to maintain all of this. Because we have the rule of law. That's not what they do. They don't know what they're doing is wrong. They hadn't thought about it. And we have to be careful here because we're, we're looking at this from the 21st century, and this is kind of a lot before that. Because we talk about slavery in this, and generally speaking, uh, for us, slavery is a red flag. It's one of those things that is absolutely evil from all standpoints. I agree, actually, it's evil from all standpoints. But let's be clear. Slavery in our time has been wrong for about 300, 400 years. We haven't, as a people eliminated slavery until the abolitionists in the, 15th, the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries brought it to our attention that what we were doing was wrong. It took us centuries upon centuries upon centuries to realize our own failings in that. So don't be too mean to the people of Israel at this point for not noticing that that was, that that was wrong. In fact, slavery has been present in absolutely every time period and every, almost every people group, almost every people group have both been owners of slaves and have been slaves. I'm not saying that slavery is good, but that it's a universal evil. Similarly, I'm guessing when it comes to the loaning at interest, that was pretty common around them. I'm guessing that the leaders and peoples around them lent money all the time. That's why they originally owned Israelites. That's why Nehemiah talks about how they had to buy some of them back from the, from the nations around them. This was a common thing that was going on. And because it was common, the rich people of Israel didn't see it. They were simply blind to it. 
Everybody does it, and so they don't see how wrong it is. So friends, be careful. There, there are probably going to be things that we are going to find out in eternity that we simply have accepted here in, tw in modern 21st century Canada that we will find out were absolute evils. I, I have some ideas about what some of those might be, but you can buy me a beer later and tell me about it. Or probably nachos. I like nachos. We can talk about that later. We can, they, they were bl simply blind to it. And we know that they were blind to it because they repented of it immediately when they saw it. But they needed to be shown. They needed to see that the thing was evil. Fourth, thing that I want to see, and this is probably one of the most important things that I want you to see about this text. Repentance is available, and it brings great joy. You see, they had done a massive evil. They had brought people into slavery. They had taken their fields, their homes, their very livelihoods. People around them, because they were hungry, <coughs> now have even less than they had when they were just hungry. Now they're hungry and poor. They had done horrible evil. Yet, notice how Nehemiah works. He doesn't come at them and say, God's totally going to get you guys. You're totally toast. God's going to send you guys back into exile now. You're going to lose everything. Nehemiah is also, as we'll find out next time I get to speak to you, Nehemiah is the governor. He has the power to expropriate from people. Remember, this is the ancient world. This is not modern Canada where we have you know, lawyers and legal rights and things. He's the governor. He could have expropriated stuff from them. He didn't do that. He could have forced them to help. But he didn't. After taking counsel with himself, recognizing that these people didn't know what, what was happening, he gave them the opportunity to repent, to turn away from their, and just to explain what repentance means, to turn away from their evil, to make good on their evil, and stop it. And then, not, to have joy in that. Notice this. And they said, we will restore those, these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. Notice their hearts are open and free and willing to accept. And I called priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. That's Nehemiah 5.12. And at the end, in verse 13, it says, And all the assembly said, Amen. And that's not a throwaway word. We like to say the word Amen as a throwaway. You know what? Can I get an Amen? Amen! It means let it be. We think this is right. This is good. This is true. Can I get an Amen? Amen. amen. Thank you. <laughs> And then they praised the Lord. That's not the, that, those aren't the actions of people who are doing this out of compulsion. These aren't the actions of people who don't know the goodness of God. These are the actions of people who know God and see God working. So we learn that repentance, well, brings joy. But what does this mean for us? First of all, 
apply the applying this to the let's bring this up into the 21st century. Like the time of this passage, we should recognize that people around us have real needs. Now, be careful. They might not be the same needs as the time of Nehemiah. Slavery is illegal. In fact, in the modern world, it's one of two, two crimes that you can be prosecuted for while doing it in international waters. The other one being piracy. It is universally hated. <coughs> but people here have other real needs. No, we don't have the same kinds of poverty here in Newfoundland as, well, they have in other parts of the world. But they do have it in other parts of the world, and those people have real needs. Here in Newfoundland, there are people who have real needs. They, some have, people have physical needs. They can't afford the house they're living in. Some people are actually homeless. Some people have mental problems, and so because of the mental problems, have fallen through the cracks of society, and we need to be in position to help them. They have real needs. Let's get some more real needs. Our culture is extremely individualistic. And because of that, lots of people are lonely. I've read a few articles recently that loneliness is one of the most prevalent forms of emotion here in the modern world. Because we all look at screens all day. I mean, how often do we actually talk to people these days? I read another book uh, this week where the guy said he'd done a, they'd done a study where they had a couple of millennials in a room facing each other, and they said, talk about something, anything. They couldn't. And then he put them both back to back, gave them their phones, and said, text to each other. No problem at all. But that shows a real need. People are lonely. People need real access. And honestly, we, we, we've known that because we felt it, probably. Second of all, though, we can be blind to real needs. Just like I am blind sometimes to the need that people have for Jesus, and make no mistake, they really do need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. I need Jesus, so why do I think everybody else doesn't? Well, I'm often blind to that need. I just don't think about it. I don't think about their need for Jesus. The thing about loneliness, I don't usually notice that. Because that's prevalent. That's like, like the economic problems that were going on in the time of Nehemiah. This whole individualism thing that we have. It's the air we breathe here. It really is. Do you really think that there aren't people around who need to have, well, friends. And the worst part is, we live in a we work in a church. We come to church every Sunday. And, I mean, not to be discussing my feelings too much. I'm a guy. I don't like doing that. I love you guys. And the best part, I know that at least some of you <laughs> love me too. <laughs> and I know that. That's a blessing that God has given me. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. At least somebody does. <laughs> but get that. that. That's a blessing we've been given. It's a blessing that 
not everybody has. And yet we can be so blind to it, we not see the people who need our help and our prayers and our discussions. How often do we actually ask people real questions, real deep probing questions about their lives? Not the kind that are, you know, uh, prying, but I really want to know. How often are we ready to ask and really mean it, how are you? Not just, you know, the kind of cursories, please tell me that you're fine so I can walk away and feel good about myself for having asked you how good you are. But no, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What kinds of things are you struggling with? Because everybody's struggling with things. And let's face it, everybody needs people in their lives who care. And it's something that's a real need here that we are often blind to. Worse, we can, also be we can also be blind to the way we contribute to these real needs. How often have we actually just ignored people around us? How often have we pretended that they don't need the fellowship that we know we can give? How often have we, have we then accented their, the isolation of other people? Accented our own isolation. We can be blind to real needs. Just as, by the way, and this is the problem I have with, with my own evangelism that I started with. It's not that I'm scared of the person I'm talking to who needs Jesus deeply and profoundly. I'm not scared of them. I mean, I'm trained in apologetics and all those questions and things. If anybody's not scared of a good question, it's me. I probably enjoy them. I know that's sick and twisted. <laughs> but, let's face it, that's not the problem. The problem is, I don't really see that they need Jesus. I just don't think about it. The person behind the counter at Starbucks needs Jesus. And by the way, the person behind the counter at Starbucks is more than the person who serves me coffee. They're a person created in the image of God. They are the very image of God standing in front of me. As C.S. Lewis would say in one of his books, at some point in, in, in the future, if I see them in the eternal state, that person standing before me is either going to be a horror so, so terrible that I would have nightmares for decades just seeing them, or something so beautiful, I would be tempted to bow down and worship because they so clearly reflect God. There are no normal people. Yet we treat everybody in the world as if they're just things to use. We can be blind to real needs, and we can, we can be blind to our role in contributing to them. Third, rebuke can be a gift. I know that's hard to believe. Nobody likes being rebuked. I, I, I'm not going to be happy with you, at least for the first few seconds, if you walk up to me and say, Steve, you're, you're, you're kind of funny looking and you know, your mom addresses you funny. I'm not going to be happy with you. It's not, I'm, I'm not going to be happy with you even if you're right. Even if you're, you're going to tell me you, know, you shouldn't shave your head the way you do because it looks, it, you've got a weird shine off your head. I'm not going to feel good about that for the first few seconds. But rebuke can be a gift. Look at what Nehemiah did for the people of, Jew of Israel. He rebuked them. He told them that they were wrong. He told them that what they were doing was evil. 
That's not something that people usually enjoy. And yet, in this case, it was a gift. He was giving them the ability to turn in faith to Jesus Christ, to, well, to God. They didn't know about Jesus Christ yet, but they would. Rebuke can be a gift. That's why we have churches. It's why I'm here with you guys. That's why people preach from the pulpit. As Hebrews says, let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, good rebuke is actually helpful. It helps us turn to Christ more, and it should give us joy. And that's the fourth point. Repentance can be a positive joy. It can be. You can have joy in actually repenting. As the people did. When they turned away from their evil and turned to goodness, when they actually did the thing that God was calling them to do, notice how they reacted. They didn't say, well, I'm glad that's over. No, they said amen, and they praised the Lord. And I'm guessing they didn't praise the Lord and, you know, like, I'm guessing they were probably pretty expressive about it. Because it, it kind of exploded from them. Amen! And they praised the Lord. It wasn't something that Nehemiah told them. We're going to have a praise service now. You have to praise Jesus now. No. They praised the Lord because they were able to turn to him. So repentance can be a true joy because God is faithful. When we're going to be celebrating this in a few minutes, hopefully if I won't wrap this up soon enough, of the communion, about how Jesus died for us, how Jesus saved us from our sin and our, and our rebellion. And the door is open for us now to repent of any sin that we have because it's all been paid for. We're going to be celebrating it. That's what this service was about. Did you catch the lyrics in the songs? You know, about how faithful God is. About how great he is. About how much he loves us. Friends, there's no reason for us to think that repentance is bad. <coughs> repentance gets us closer to the God who loves us. And who gave himself for us. Repentance is a positive joy. So, in the standoff, I've got a couple of questions here that we should probably be asking ourselves. I think we should ask ourselves. First of all, you see, this is going to be the big issue for us. Do we really desire Christ? Because all of this, what I've just said, would make no sense to you if, the, if Christ is not a positive value for you. If money is more important to you than Jesus, repenting of your love of money is not a good thing. So the question is going to be, do you really desire Jesus? If your ability to have a fortress of solitude in your basement is more important than having fellowship with other believers, repentance is not going to sound good to you. So you need to have a true desire for Christ. And if you don't have a desire for Christ, come talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you about how awesome Christ is. And hopefully you'll have a desire for Christ. I'm sure there's a few other people who would be happy to do that for you, but I want to do it, so please come to me. <laughs> 
Second, are we in places where we can be corrected? I, the church is a good start, but do you have close friendships? People who can speak into your lives and say things that you need to hear. And people that you know love you, that you know care for you. Do you love people like that? Are there people in your life that you would be willing to actually deal with saying negative things to because their good is more important to you than their liking you? Do you actually come to church with your ears open to hear from people like me who stand in pulpits and who expound the word of God so that hopefully you can hear what God is saying? Do you read the word of God? The Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to correct you. Do you read it? Are you placing yourself in places where we can be corrected? Third. Sorry, I need this because I, I think I changed it. Do we seek our joy through repentance? That's important. Because if we desire Christ truly, if we are in positions to be corrected, we do need to be in the position to seek out our own repentance. Not because we feel guilty about stuff. Not because we think that, you know, uh, it's bad that we do this stuff. But because there's something greater than this. Friends, when you have communion, it means that you have communion with Christ. That God has come to us. That God desires to be with us. And that's where repentance takes us. Closer to Christ. Closer to God. Closer to the position where this all makes sense. Where we can have fellowship with one another. Good fellowship. Solid fellowship. That's what repentance is for. Repentance is not bad. It's good because it gets us where we need to be, closer to Christ. Finally, and this is very, very, very important. Does God's grace flow through us or simply bless us? Be careful. I do not mean it's bad that God blesses you. <laughs> Blessing is good. It's good to have God blessing you. But let's be careful and be clear. God doesn't bless you for yourself alone. He blesses you for the sake of other people. So let's be, let's be accurate and honest. In the ways that God has blessed us, count the ways that God's blessed you. Be thankful for the ways that God has blessed you. But more than that, when you see the ways that God has blessed you, use those ways that you've been blessed to bless others. Do you have a lot of friends? Go out of your way to invite other people into your circle of friends. Do you have a lot of money? Find ways to help people get money. It's useful. Do you have a lot of understanding of things that need to be done or things that, uh, or training when things that are very difficult? Give that training to other people. I mean, heck, we live in a church. There's a lot of things that go on here. Be willing to help one another. Has God blessed you? Then bless others. And this one that every one of us has, 
At least if you're in Christ, you know Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, be ready to bless other people with that. Because in the end, this is all about God. This is all about knowing God. This is all about His glory. And He's given us great blessings to bless others with. Friends, the world is a very dark place. There's a lot of bad things going on. There's a lot of bad things that people do to one another. They don't need more people telling them how bad the world is. What they need is more people showing them the blessings of God. Showing them what's good in the world. Showing them what God has done, for, has done, is doing, and will do for them. So let's, pre- let's learn about Christ. Let's know him and make him known. Let's pray. Lord God, standing up here is always a bit stressful because you choose to use the frail things of this world to speak your truth. I pray that you've done that this morning. I pray that where uh, I've said things that were mistaken, I pray that you would correct that. Where I have been wrong, I pray that you would rebuke me so that I might repent. But Lord God, I pray that you confirm the truth of your word to your people so that we would be strengthened to love you and to serve you. Lord God, may we not use our blessings just for ourselves, but may we allow blessings to flow through us to the people around us, whether those be people here in the church or people not in the church. Let us be joyful in the way we spread joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.